Mm-hmm. But you just recently toured the metaverse. How was that? Was that a better, <laughs> a better universe, I guess? It's a very low polygon universe. There's, the graphics in our universe are much better than the metaverse. Yeah, it's a fun experience. Mm-hmm. Uh, don't know how much traction it'll get. Uh, I remember the early days of Second Life, which apparently is still around, mm-hmm. but, but didn't seem to break into mainstream consciousness, maybe with the power of Mark Zuckerberg and Microsoft behind Metaverse products. It'll, uh, it'll become more the norm. Yeah. I mean, VR has been kicking around for like decades, right? Since the mid-90s. And uh, yeah. that's sort of been kind of a thing, but not really a thing. Um, and it's the same thing you're saying. Like, it really hasn't kind of cracked that mainstream consciousness. Yeah. People uh, that play sim racing and sim flying games love the VR. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a great use case for them when you're doing an activity in a fixed cockpit type position. But when you're moving around and stuff, it, I get very disorientated and get quite sick. Yeah. So it just doesn't work for me very well, you know? Mm-hmm. Yo, welcome to my summer layer. I am your host, Sammy. I don't like the smell of napalm in the morning. You name. Who are some of your favorite photographers? In a painting, the artist will sign his work. Same thing with comic book covers. With photography, however, there are, like, watermarks, for the most part. Really and honestly, the artist's signature is in the framing. What the photographer specifically captured and the story they wish to convey. In the hands of a great photographer, photos are as distinct as handwriting. Annie Leibovitz, who shoots a lot of celebrities, has a personal style the lighting, and the visual color. While Chris Buck, who also avidly shoots celebrities, takes an irreverent and intimate approach. You can see a famous person's photograph and know if it was shot by Chris Buck or by Annie Leibovitz. That personal framing is also how we receive journalism photos, which are often unsettling photos. Sometimes we see a war happening in real time. We've seen disturbing images since Vietnam. Sometimes we see the chaos and suffering following events such as the earthquake in Haiti. Thanks in large part to the photos we see, we know many of these events. However, we rarely know the photographers and the photojournalists who snapped these images. Welcome director Patrick Dell to the program. His documentary is Shooting War. Shooting War reveals the stories of several photojournalists, the physical, emotional, and spiritual costs it took for them to shoot the photos we see. We tend to associate PTSD with the soldiers on the front lines, but war impacts the people who shoot it as well. It's it's an all-encompassing experience. And now we can listen to their stories. The stories behind the photos, but also the personal stories of dealing with trauma and trying to reintegrate into our society following these ugly events. How do you just put all that behind you and just come here and just keep, you know, ordering things on Amazon and like watching things on Netflix? War photography is a reminder that a photo is worth a thousand words, not a thousand likes.
Here's my conversation with director Patrick Doe. Sound, the final frontier. My summer lair is an enterprise, a pop culture voyage with a continuing mission to explore strange new worlds, to seek out new creators and celebrate established producers, to boldly go where no podcast has gone before. And now here is your host, Sammy Yunan. Uh, before we talk about your documentary, Shooting War, I want to talk about your Instagram account. Because it's consciously like absent of a lot of humans. There are some humans kind of float around, but for the most part, you kind of see like humans that were just sort of there, like tracks in the snow. Uh, you have a parking garage image where it said no horn, so the person obviously wants to live in peace and quiet. Maybe that neighborhood is noisy or something. You seem to have like this kind of humanless approach, I guess, to your Instagram. And I kind of want to know, like, are you searching for stories or what's the spark behind that? That is a fascinating question. And uh, one that I think about sometimes because I get that feedback from other people as well. Um, I like architecture and I like the urban landscape. And I like the perception that people are just transitory elements in these fixed places that are made by humans, but we're not permanently there. Mm -hmm. I think I'm also heavily influenced by uh, an Australian landscape artist uh, named Jeffrey Smart, who painted urban landscapes with big, bold colours and bold patterns, but also no people. And he's got he's has some famous artwork of locations in Australia where I'm from originally. And I grew up looking at his work, and that I think has infused my eye as well when I'm out with my phone shooting for myself for Instagram. Yeah, there is a lot of colours too, a lot of bright colours uh, that kind of like pop on your Instagram. And I guess part of that too is your kind of uh, visual background where you can kind of edit or kind of uh, work on those, kind of like highlight them and like make them shine. In in most cases, and I think this comes from being working in, in news and, and being a photographer is is anticipation and visualizing. Like I, I, use, I always have in my mind what I want the shot to look like at the end before I even activate the camera mode or pick up my camera. Mm -hmm. uh, so that I think is just part of the way my brain works. And I see what see something that catches my eye and I already know how I want it to look at the end. And if it doesn't, then I just don't look at the picture again. Uh, sometimes you can't make it fit the way that you expected it, expected it to. Yeah. It's kind of like stand-up comedy in a sense, right? Where like you kind of know where the punchline is or what the joke is going to be, but sometimes you don't have the words or the language to kind of get the audience there with you. So it kind of ends up a little clunky. Sometimes the execution's not quite there. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yes, anticipation, anticipation, and visual. It's a bit early in the morning still. Visualization and uh, visualize, visualization and anticipation are those two things in my mind working together constantly to find those little moments to capture when I'm out and about. Has our relationship uh, to photojournalism has that been impacted by Instagram and Facebook and like the flood of photos we see now on a daily or even hourly basis we see a lot more photos than we ever used to so has that relationship to photojournalism uh, been impacted by Facebook Instagram and all these kind of photo sharing platforms I think in one aspect there's been this massive commodification of photography generally it's so accessible anyone with a phone can and does capture their life and sometimes they capture breaking news events as well mm -hmm. so it gives it gives you a window into events that we otherwise wouldn't have which is extraordinary and ukraine is an example where there's photos and footage every day 
uh, being shot by civilians and by combatants that we otherwise would never see. So it gives you access and insights that are totally new. But the flip side is there is still a critical role for professional photojournalists. And the key word there is journalist because you're not just capturing a picture or a moment, you're reporting on what's happening, which needs someone with the skills, authority, knowledge to do that in a clear, concise and unbiased way. And you can see footage, again, say Ukraine as an example, and it looks like it's showing something, but you can't be sure what it's actually depicting because you weren't there, you don't know who shot it or where it came from. But at least with a professional photojournalist, you know their work, you know their background, you know if they're working for an agency or, or another publication, mm-hmm. you have you have a chain of ownership essentially from the moment something happened to the moment you're seeing it. And also, um, this is a case with photographers in the film who have amazing bodies of work and I see hundreds and hundreds of pictures coming into our system every day at the globe. And there is some element to the photos that the photographers in the film have that give them an extra something Mm -hmm. that even other photojournalists aren't capturing. It's the moments, their framing, it's just that, I don't know, special source that they bring and you can appreciate why they are the top of the field and have been recognized internationally for for their work with awards because they bring something extra, whether it's humanity or drama or action or context that you don't necessarily see from other photojournalists' work who are also, you know, filing amazing pictures and telling terrific stories. Uh, even in the, the fairly small realm of conflict photojournalists and high-end photojournalists, there's still differences in how they go about capturing often the same story or the same scene. Your documentary Shooting War touches upon that because it's not necessarily about the photographer. For the most part, the mainstream audience doesn't really know a lot of the photojournalists or like the names, but we know the photos. And so yeah, exactly. it's kind of an interesting, I guess, tension because the photos that we take, and that's why I was asking about Instagram and stuff like that, the photos that we tend to generally take as a public, I guess, they're more about the photographer and about the lifestyle. We're kind of promoting ourselves or promoting things like, look at us, we're having fun or whatever. And there's nothing wrong with any of that. But it's a totally different story than what you're talking about, what what photojournalists are telling and how the story that they're trying to communicate. So it's less about the photographer and more about the story of the war, the front lines or the humanitarian crisis or whatever it may be. That's exactly right. And I would say any photojournalist I can think of, and in fact, any journalist I can think of, they are not the story and they would prefer not to be the story. They're trying to bring the story to a wider audience. And by putting themselves in the middle of the story can change the nature of what's being shown or the way it's being captured sometimes unavoidably you do end up in the middle of a story or a a terrifying situation and and it's unavoidable but for the most part photojournalists and journalists look to be like a lens through which someone can experience what's happening rather than hear it in a narrative style Mm -hmm. and there are there are writers and uh, filmmakers who will tell those more personal stories and more uh, intimate stories with that personal aspect, uh, which is, I think, distinct from straight photojournalism. That makes sense, yeah. So we want to kind of get deeper into your documentary, Shooting War, but you and I both know what the Globe and Mail is, but for anybody not familiar with the Globe and Mail, you've kind of already mentioned it, but like, can you give us a little quick introduction of the Globe and Mail and who they are, what they do? Absolutely. The Globe and Mail is Canada's national newspaper. 
We have uh, bureaus in cities across Canada from coast to coast, uh, including Northern Canada in uh, uh, like Thunder Bay and other places north. Uh, we have bureaus in uh, other countries uh, from England, uh, South Africa, Rome, Beijing, and we have correspondents coming and going through Ukraine at the moment and the regions around there. And the globe pursues stories of national and international interest to prioritize the uh, important issues that affect Canadians and affect everyone around the world uh, from climate change to humanitarian rights to human rights generally uh, and the people who face you know, the terrible consequences of conflict. Yeah, and the, the terrible consequences of conflict is, is what's captured uh, in your documentary Shooting War, which is a feature-length documentary from the Global Mail. So I know the Global Mail shoots like smaller videos for their YouTube channels. You've done some of them. I think you even had one where you took your son, he's like a little toddler, uh, to a car show. It's really cute, really fun. Like You did some very solid research there into my uh, YouTube history. <laughs> yes. <laughs> there you go. That was a fun video, though. I was talking about that to my son this morning, and he'd oh, okay. forgotten all about it. Oh, is he still into cars, or is he likes the things that go faster? He's more into, I would say, Pokemon and cosmology. Okay. So that might have to prompt another, like, uh, different, like, maybe you can take him to Comic-Con or something, like another video uh, as, as I, kind of like a yeah, sequel. He would, he would get a lot out of that, for sure. <laughs> But what I'm getting at is, like, I know that Globe and Mail does those kind of short videos, and they're fun. And like I said, like, you took your toddler son to a car show, and he's having fun with the cars, and they go fast and zoom and all that stuff. Uh, but I wasn't aware that the Globe and Mail made documentaries. Is this a new initiative, or is, like, can we expect more long-form documentaries, even perhaps short-form documentaries from the Globe video production team in the future? It is relatively new for us to go for something of this length and this profile, but it's definitely not the last we're already gearing up for our next big project that we hope to have ready by middle of next year uh we've been doing video at the globe for quite a few years i've been at the globe for 10 years working with video and my experience goes back to television news in australia uh and we generally aim our videos at your internet audience where it's relatively short and it's relatively tightly put together so it's taking you somewhere or explaining a topic so that you can get a handle on it and then move on to your next thing you want to watch or read. There was a period when everyone was pivoting to video, which was the slogan at the time. Mm -hmm. And everyone was throwing resources on that video and uh, putting it on Facebook. And everyone was just obsessed with the video and some organizations went through extreme growth at the time. And then the revenue didn't back up that level of growth. And so there's been, I think, a recalibration over the last few years into what works. And there is, I think, a middle ground that just doesn't warrant the effort of input, which is that 20 to 30 minute online only doc that doesn't get a huge profile like being shown at a festival mm -hmm. and can't get into important issues with as much depth. So there seems to be a sweet spot where there are videos, you know, up to five minutes and then maybe around the 20 minute mark where you can watch it in one sitting. Mm -hmm. But then between that 20 minutes to say 45 minutes, it's kind of like a bit of a, a gap where there doesn't seem to be a good place to fit those kind of uh, productions. But if you go longer and push to more a feature length, then you open yourselves up to festivals, 
selling through to distributors, on-demand, streaming services, and there's much, there's many more options for where you could put the film and recoup the investment of time and energy and money. And the other thing that uh, the Globe is interested in doing is just exploring all of the stories that we have in new, in new ways. We, we tell dozens of stories a day, and some of them have so much broader detail and depth to them that they deserve to be told in bigger, newer ways. And that might be a podcast or a photo gallery or a video, or you go to a long feature length video. Yeah. And you've touched upon this a bit. We, we tend to know the images, but we don't know the photojournalists who take the images. And so this documentary shooting war, it kind of explores uh, a number of photojournalists um, and their kind of, I guess, trauma, their PTSD from being on the front lines in these humanitarian crises and these civil wars and these things that they've seen. And this is kind of what you're talking about, which is like it's expanding not just the stories of these things we've seen, like the, the images and stuff we've seen of like Sarajevo and Rwanda and all these places, but it's also exploring the stories of the photojournalists themselves, which we never really get to see or hear. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, there are iconic images in the film that most people would recognize immediately, I think, because mm -hmm. they've become part of the cultural landscape. And right. I think most general consumers of news don't look at who a photo is shot by when they're flicking through a website or a newspaper. I think you have to be more attuned to the business to really focus on that. But I think sometimes there are like striking images that just you can't get out of your head and Ron Haviv's photo of Muslim civilians being beaten and killed in uh, Bosnia in the 90s is an example of that. And yeah, it's fascinating to hear the photographers talk about the moments that led up to and then the, the impact that photo had afterwards. And Ron's remarkable that he's had several photographs that have pivoted international policy uh, from his camera to the world, which is an extraordinary achievement. Um, but it's also the thought process to add that extra layer of thought and quote unquote artistry to an image so that it's compelling and telling a story, but also in an aesthetically pleasing way. And what the film also gets at is how their minds can assemble all those elements in fractions of a second in extreme danger sometimes to capture these like remarkable images. And it's fascinating to hear them go into detail about not just what was happening at that moment as they were shooting it, but then the after effects that came, that came afterwards, whether it's in the case of Ron of having uh, war crime trials for the militia who killed these civilians, or in the case of um, Corinne Dufka who decided to leave the field after uh, a terrible bombing mm -hmm. uh, in Nigeria. And she recognized that her focus was purely on the work and not about the civilian casualties of this terrorist bombing and that made her rethink her role and then leave photography uh, leave professional photojournalism behind and work in in human rights research and it's easy to forget there are people out there capturing this work whether it's photography or video or print reporters all over the world uh trying to bring these stories to light and yeah they do have lasting impacts from what they've experienced which is inevitable whether it's ptsd or this new concept that the film explores called moral injury where anyone can experience some sense of wrongness when they see something that they 
they object to morally that they can't do anything about. And that could be someone who's covering a conflict zone, but it could be the person looking at that picture in the newspaper who can't help that person. It could be an emergency services worker that's seen one too many car accidents. It, it, it's a much broader conception of how damaging intense imagery and even intense written stories can have an effect on anyone who consumes them, not just the people who create them originally. The documentary presents an interesting paradox because the photographers are journalists, so they're shooting, quote-unquote, with objectivity, right? They understand people are on the front lines and people are dying, and there's a war, there's all these things kind of going on. They understand that, but they have to shoot and report the story, quote-unquote, with some ob objectivity. That's kind of their job, their task. But the consumer or the people that receive the photos via the news, they don't look at it with objectivity. They get emotional. They get angry. They they protest Vietnam in the case of like Tim Page. Like they donate to a nonprofit or an NGO. They protest in the streets. It it it, it provokes a reaction in the people, which is interesting because when the fo photographer when the when yeah when the photographer is taking the image, they can they can quote unquote always be emotional in the moment. Yeah, that's right, and. To expand on that point a little bit, once a photo is published online, it, or even when a photo is filed into a wire service or to a publication, once it's out in the world, it could be repurposed in any way, shape, or form. Mm -hmm. uh, it could be used for um, propaganda uses, it could be totally recontextualized and used for mis or disinformation. And this happens, unfortunately, all too often. And when I've been watching what's happening in Ukraine on Twitter, I'll see a photo and go, that photo looks familiar. Mm -hmm. Do a reverse image search. Oh, it's from somewhere else entirely, like five or six years ago, and it's been passed off as being like live action from from Ukraine. It's critical for the audience to be alert to what they're reading and to consume a wide range of content, so that they do have a good sense of what is true mm -hmm. and what is being misrepresented or positioned in a way to have you make that an emotional reaction or that knee-jerk reaction. And that's unfortunately seems to be what social media algorithms uh, have evolved to trigger is that knee-jerk emotional engagement beyond actually reading the story and understanding what's really at issue. And uh, I think that's just the nature, unfortunately, of how social media has evolved and how quickly things come. It's, there is so much constantly being generated to consume and to watch you need to have that, I think, a little bit of discipline and focus on what you're consuming and be a discerning consumer of news of whatever type, because there is a lot of fake news, to use that term, mm -hmm. uh, just misinformation, either through ignorance or, or willful misinformation. And uh, it's, it's a challenge to not fight against it, but show people what the true context is and for me context is everything everything has intrinsic context and if you strip that away then you don't get the full story yeah the social media has kind of flatlined uh all the credentials so because you just see an image and like we were talking before sometimes you don't know who the photojournalists are and so it's you have to have a better sense or i guess skepticism is a better word you have to have some skepticism in where the where this photo is coming from where the source is and obviously when it's like globe mail or new york times or whatever these one of these reputable 
sources, you're like, okay, I can trust this. I know this hasn't been doctored or there's no Photoshop or anything like this. But it's interesting because people don't always go with the trusted sources. As you said, you did a reverse image search for that one photo and you saw it was like from five years ago or for some, something else completely out of context. And so if you don't have that kind of skepticism when approaching, especially with social media stuff, and you just see something and you just blindly react to it, it's kind of like you're part of the problem in terms of spreading that misinformation. Right. Yes, exactly. And that's why I think some platforms have tried to uh, encourage people to read the story or give an, give an estimate of how long it will take you to read so that you don't just see a headline or see a photo and have that, have that knee-jerk reaction. I think it's good to be uh, uh, skeptical generally, mm -hmm. you know, be think deeply about what you're reading and what it's saying and why it's telling you things in a certain way, whomever it's, it's being published by. And the more reputable ones, maybe you don't need to think as deeply about, but if you're consuming media from another source or from social media, then it's, you just need to, I think you just need to slow down and, yeah, think really critically. I feel fortunate that I've, I've essentially grown up with the internet uh, and have evolved with it. So I kind of understand it and the way it could be misused. But f I think for some older generation and even some younger generation, it's so immediate or it's a little bit uh, new still that there isn't like the mindset to have that little moment of essentially research do your own little and like do that that phrase do your research mm -hmm. has become applied to other topics uh but applying it here to like uh, actual news coverage is yeah is to think think sensibly and think critically about everything that's going on uh i think that's become a bit of a lost art generally is uh, just slowing down and just thinking through things just a little bit more yeah that's and a, I that's a motto it's the motto that I try to follow myself too. So I want to pick up on that thread because that's interesting in terms of like slowing down and thinking critically. Um, I was thinking when I was watching your documentary, there's a number of of really dark, hard images, obviously, because all your photojournalists, the nine photojournalists that are in the documentary are all covering like uh, Rwanda and Haiti and like uh, Sarajevo and really like dark, ugly moments in human history. So there's a lot of violence. There's a lot of death. There's a lot of destruction. Uh, I was thinking about OJ Made in America. It's an ESPN docu-series. And the director and the production team, they wrestled with showing the grisly crime scene photos with the two people who got murdered, Nicole Brown Simpson and Ron Goldman. Uh, they decided to include them in the documentary and they were quite shocking from the blood splattering, you can get a sense of the rage and the violence. Uh, you can mm -hmm. extrapolate something horrific happened here, and it kind of fills in the story much more than, like, maybe OJ did it or maybe OJ didn't do it. Like, the images obviously convey, like, a thousand words, as the, the old cliche. Mm -hmm. So for you and your team, what was the debate about which photographs to show and one not to show, like, knowing that you're dealing with war and humanitarian crises? Like... There's going to be blood and horror and violence. Like you have to show some of that. But what was the debate like in terms of what to show or not to show? When we were putting the film together, we put in what we felt was the strongest, most compelling images, which included some that were very graphic, which as we watched the film and refined it, we took some of those out because rather than shocking you about the nature of what's happening it distracted you from what was actually being spoken about at that moment in the documentary 
and you lose the thread of the thing being discussed or the story being retold at the time. And it took you away from the issue more than make it more impactful. So we dialed back some of the uh, more graphic images. Uh, for example, an image from Haiti of someone whose head had been uh, skinned, essentially. But at the same time, yeah, there are images of someone being dragged across the street the moment someone appears to be shot, um, someone bleeding from their side as they're carried away by other civilians. Uh, yeah, we need to show those things. We could have shown things that are far more graphic and even today photos are filed from all around the world that are more graphic than get published in mainstream media. And there's always a discussion going on, whether it's around Ukraine or about shooting war or coverage of these issues generally is how far do you go? What's the audience tolerance for it? And does it enhance the story? Does it enhance your understanding of what's happening? It's sometimes I feel like those images are used purely for their shock value. And sometimes it's worth shocking people when that young boy drowned and was washed up on, on the shores of Greece. Mm -hmm. That was a horrific photo that resonated around the world. And we had a discussion that day, would we run it on A1 on the front page of the Globe? And we decided to, and it was quite a discussion about that. And I think that was the right call at the time because there are photos, whether they show injuries or death that transcend that moment of tragedy for that person and are reflective of a much bigger story. And that was the case uh, for that photo of that little boy. And it's even like hitting me now, just thinking back to it because it was just so powerful at the time. And uh, it's, it's the same with you know, our daily coverage. And then when we're putting together shooting war, it's that balance of what's, developing and enhancing the story, but not doing it in a gratuitous, shocking way that is distracting people from actually following what is the underlying issue. Yeah, in Shooting War, one of your photojournalists that you interview, Tim Page, he talks about Vietnam and that one being one of the first kind of visual images that people saw of the war and what it was doing to the soldiers and things like that. And that is like, as he said, he put this, it set the standard in terms of like what kind of stories you can tell, what kind of stories you can share. And that, I think, it kind of feeds into what you're talking about, which is like how far is too far? Because obviously they were in the middle of a war zone, and so there's quite a number of grisly things that are happening. But at the same time, he's able to convey and tell this story. Uh, and that, of course, obviously fueled a lot of the protests and a lot of the anger at what was happening to Vietnam. Yes, that, that's right. Tim is a remarkable individual, and interviewing him is is a true highlight of working on the film and uh, looking at his body of work uh, is extraordinary from his entire career in Vietnam, but also everything else that he's covered in, in the decades since. Um, I, Tim, I don't think intentionally set out to become or to shoot images that would become used for anti-war purposes. He was shooting what was happening in front of him. And I think you're right mainstream North American audiences wouldn't have been exposed to that kind of imagery. You're talking about mid-60s here, mm -hmm. pretty conservative time. Leave uh, it to Beaver and all that. Precisely, uh, Mr. Ed. And mm -hmm. so you have that, and then you have like the photograph that Tim talks about of an ambush that killed dozens, a dozen soldiers within seconds, and then that's going to be on the newscast that's following Leave it to Beaver. Yeah, that was a hard image to see. Like, I had never seen that image before. I was like, oh, my stomach hurt a little bit. Yeah, that's an intense image. And e even the way, the fairly matter-of-fact way that Tim talks about shooting that image in some archival footage, even just this, his, like, pretty low-key way 
makes it seem more impactful for me because to him, to us, it's, it's a striking image that leaves an impression on your mind. But to him, it was day 400 in Vietnam. Mm -hmm. And this was day 401, 402, 403. And uh, some, some images just seem to click in the consciousness and they become emblematic of an event or a war. And uh, th this image of, uh, an, it's a color image of an ambush and you can see a helicopter with a like a pink smoke grenade in the background as the foreground is soldiers lying on the ground being treated by medics and you can see they're clearly injured people not in a graphic way it, it's a incredible moment that captures so much of vietnam in one frame you know the the, the iconic huey helicopter the the smoke grenades the jungle the uniforms uh you know it, it's it's vietnam in one frame and and it just became like emblematic but Tim shot so much else and so many other photographers such shot so many other images from Vietnam that are possibly just as striking, compelling and encapsulate what was happening. But sometimes it's just the way things evolve. One gets picked and goes on a front page and it becomes the defining image of that story. It's interesting because the documentary suggests there's like a disconnect. On the one hand, there's the documentation of the invaluable journalism, as you said, uh, Tim Page is doing this great work in Vietnam and bringing the war to people uh, and shocking them uh, as they're in their conflicts and things like that. A lot of the photojournalists in the documentary Shooting War, they kind of shared some positive impact stories and maybe some laws got changed or maybe this one uh, insane asylum got like uh, humanitarian aid, these kind of things. Yet they're also kind of like struggling to fit into society or like they get fired from jobs when they try and come back to like quote-unquote real life here in North America after they're overseas uh, shooting all these things. It kind of mirrors the whole thing of like support your troops, support your troops, which is what we say when they're over there and fighting. But when they come back here, we kind of treat them badly or like we ignore them. It's like almost like they came back from a vacation. It's like we don't really factor in the fact that they came back from a war and that they would have different needs that need to be addressed. It's easy enough to say things, but it's much harder to put uh, things into action or to actually you know, help people that need help or reintegrate people. Um, in, excuse me, in, in the case of the photojournalists, yeah, they went through extraordinary experiences and I can I totally understand why it's hard to re-engage with mainstream society. That could be said of people who've been incarcerated for a long period or uh, maybe moved to another country and have to adapt to a whole new language and culture. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's remarkable how resilient these photojournalists are because while there's more understanding and support uh, around mental health and PTSD and moral injury today, uh, they were doing it all themselves uh, for decades and generations of photojournalists and other, other people covering these type of stories would have been dealing with this completely off the cuff for, for generations. So while it's getting better, yeah, there's still a lot of work to do. And it's, it's a remarkable how generous the photojournalists were in the film with sharing these stories and, and their openness with what they went through and how long it took them to unpack what they experienced. And as, as Santiago Leon says, who has left photojournalism but still works in the industry, he works for Adobe, he, uh, he called it mental laundry. I think it's a great way of putting it. Mm -hmm. you know, you've piled all this stuff up into your head and at some point you've got to put in the work with, with the right support to clean it all out and try to make sense of it all again and return to functioning in, in mainstream society. Yeah, Tim Page, the photojournalist we just mentioned, like in the course of the documentary, 
he talks about taking drugs. He talks about suicide. He talks about divorce. And a number of other photojournalists in the documentary have the same kind of experiences. They see things and they can't kind of unsee them. So they kind of have to emotionally and spiritually kind of grapple with them and try to process them. Yeah, that's that's totally right. And when I was interviewing Tim, you could feel the decades of anguish just coming off him. And I, I have huge respect uh, for Tim, where he is now and how he refound, found himself again through, uh, for him, it was spiritualism through Buddhism and, uh, and other forms of counseling. And yeah, yeah. Tim, I, there's a story, I don't know if it's true or not, but uh, at one point Tim was working for Rolling Stone and Rolling Stone assigned him to, sh to do a story with Hunter S. Thompson, who, you know, known hardcore drug user and wild person. Uh, Gonzo journalist. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, Hunter S. Thompson said, uh, Tim Page is too crazy for me to work with. <laughs> That's both a compliment and uh, like, uh, I guess, an insult. Yeah, whether it's true or not, it, mm -hmm. uh, it's hard to say, but it's an interesting way of like characterizing his willingness to put himself in those in those situations. And yeah, like he spoke frankly about LSD, suicide attempts, Russian roulette, multiple divorces, and uh, it's like I feel very fortunate that Tim is still with us and that he could share his stories with us uh, because you know he, many photojournalists didn't make it through either they were horrifically injured or killed uh, while working, or they just could never find themselves again. And uh, like in Tim's case, he has for decades tried to find uh, Sean Flynn, who was another photojournalist uh, who went missing in Vietnam. His remains were never found. And Tim and he were colleagues and friends. And Tim has searched tirelessly to try to find clues to what happened to him. And he, he was finally declared dead uh, in absentia, in absentia yeah sure that sounds like a right term where you get um, no evidence and no body right that's right yeah and sean flynn's family declared him dead uh, in the 80s having mm -hmm. been missing since the 60s uh so you know for everyone that is still with us and can share their stories there's others who weren't as fortunate uh in a way i guess yeah and you mentioned this phrase twice now moral injury so i think most people are familiar with PTSD, especially from uh, frontline soldiers and stuff like that. We're kind of used to that term uh, in the mainstream consciousness. But what is moral injury? I was something I'd never heard of either. Yeah, moral injury is relatively new. Uh, talking like I think late eighties, early nineties, it first emerged in 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 the psych psychiatry literature. And I, I'm no psychiatrist. I'm no doctor. So this is my uh, sharing of information from the psychiatrist in the film, Professor Ant Anthony Feinstein, who's a neuropsychiatrist at Sunnybrook and University of Toronto. And he's been researching PTSD and this concept of moral injury for some time. And he's written books about the issue. So moral injury is when you feel damage to your moral code by your inability to help in a dangerous or tragic, tragic situation where you can't do anything directly or by trying to do something, you would put yourself in danger. Uh, so through your own action or inaction, something terrible happens to put it into a nutshell. And that could be you're covering a conflict and you're seeing someone get shot in front of you. Do you pull them to safety? Do you try to administer first aid? Do you 
keep shooting? And then how do you reconcile all those thoughts in the hours after the um, after the after that moment has passed? And that applies not just to someone who was there at the scene covering these things. It could be someone who's consuming it later, and it could be something not even conflict related. Um, an example that that, uh, that comes to my mind is uh, like the Exxon Valdez oil spill. Or, or the huge oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico a few years ago. Um, I can't do anything to help fix that. I can't go and plug a well. I can't clean birds personally or try to sweep up all this oil. And I felt this kind of moral frustration, I would call it, that this was happening and couldn't I couldn't directly help. And I think that is how I've kind of conceptualized moral injury for the things that I've seen, and that, and that was just in just general general cons consumption of news, seeing these these stories from uh, these oil spills, an example. But it could it could be anything, and and I feel like we could see a future where people have moral injury from lack of action around climate change or issues of social justice, because it's this feeling of powerlessness, powerlessness, and inability to directly affect positive change in what's happening right in front of you. Yeah, it's another interesting dynamic uh, that kind of echoes throughout the documentary. Is it a succinct description? Yeah, it, it is. Because if you don't have these photojournalists on the front line, like you said, showing us the oil spill or even uh, the earthquake in Haiti, if we don't see these things, we don't know how bad these things are, we don't know that there's a problem. Because just the way that life is, it's not like a good thing or bad thing. We just kind of like, you know drop the kids off at karate practice and like we're going to work and like sometimes we don't even have time for like lunch and things like that like we kind of need to be shocked we when we were talking before about vietnam people were just sitting and watching around like watching leave the beaver and other things like that and so they need to be shocked and need to know what was happening in vietnam they need to see it so it's kind of an interesting dynamic where like if we don't get this information then we can't do anything about it but if when we get the information, sometimes we feel so angry because we're powerless to do something or to fix it. Yeah, exactly. Or in the case of moral injury, it could be emergency workers who've seen too many car crashes or had to deal with too many tragedies. And uh, it it can be like a broad, like a broad concept. Like when we see a house on fire, we don't go in with a hose or with a bucket of water. We call the firemen. Because they can solve that problem. We don't have the training to solve that problem, right? And so that's the problem with what you're talking about with moral injury. When we see this information, we need it. We need the photojournalists to do this work. But then it's very irritating because there's not much we can do about it. That's true in, in some sense. But I also think there's a positive feedback loop that could form. And this is something that uh, our uh, senior international correspondent, Mark McKinnon, has mentioned and Mark has covered Ukraine and other conflicts extensively as a, as a print journalist, and he does videos for us as well, is, yes, someone in Toronto or Canada can't do these to kind of affect uh, the way a war is being handled directly. But if they consume that news, then that'll tell those news organisations there's interest in that, and they'll publish those stories with greater prominence which means they'll be seen by the decision makers who can affect change. So if, if we keep our eyes on these important issues, they stay at the top level of awareness of what's being discussed politically, uh, NGOs, other, other bodies that can actually go and help people. So it's important to 
make the, the time to, to bring your focus to those stories that you do care about so that they can get hopefully the profile they deserve so that they can have some positive change. Mm-hmm. And so what are you hoping then for this documentary for Shooting War? Now that's playing at Hot Docs, uh, it's obviously going to play in front of an audience. The in-person screenings have returned. Uh, so what are you hoping? As we've kind of touched upon a number of these issues, one which is being that a lot of people don't know who these photojournalists are, uh, but they know the images. Uh, are you hoping that people kind of see how news is made? And as you said, kind of like, if you are interested in a story like Ukraine, keep clicking on the stuff and like keep sharing it so that the newspaper knows that it's like valuable and kind of keeps reporting on those stories. What kind of impact are you hoping to have with this documentary? You touched on a, a key point there, which is to show a wider audience how the news is made and how it gets to them. I think too much and for too long, newsrooms are like a black box where things just come out. And that's why you have, you know, these blank blanket terms applied to things like mainstream media. Uh, it's people doing work that they think is important. Uh, you know, newsrooms are made up of individuals like any other organization. Um, so I hope that people have a greater appreciation of the work that goes in and the people that are creating these stories and also understand that these are happening still. There are photos in shooting war from Bosnia and uh, other places that could have been shot in Ukraine today. And uh, it's important to recognize that for all the politi political leaders saying never again and you know, controlling aggression, there's still this pattern of it happening seemingly generation after generation. So pressure your leaders, you know, bring, keep these things in the forefront of your mind uh, understand that there are people being caught in the, in the crossfire, uh, civilians being uh, displaced, uh, violence, rape, torture, relocation. Uh, and the only way that these things can be addressed and hopefully stopped is by being aware of them and understanding what's happening. And, and there's the two aspects to that. It's, it's not only that these stories need to be told, but there are people who are telling these stories and putting themselves at risk to do so that's how important we view them as and even just today uh, a journalist has reportedly been killed in ukraine and there's been several already killed uh, working in ukraine so like the, the death toll tragically continues to go up not just for combatants and civilians but for the journalists who are trying to cover these these stories the film is dedicated uh, to the 175 photojournalists killed between 1992 and 2021 i didn't realize the number was that high I'd known a couple of the ones like uh, Daniel Pearl, I think it was. And, you know, I knew a couple of them that you kind of see, but I, I hadn't realized that the number was that high. <laughs> that was also shocking to me as well, watching the documentary. It, it is shocking. That number comes from the Committee to Protect Journalists who have a database that tracks any journalist who's injured or killed through the course of their work anywhere in the world. A freelancer or staff, photographer, reporter, it, it doesn't matter. And uh, when you filter their database... Uh, you can see what the number is and crimes against journalists, murder of journalists is is tragically common and I think becoming even worse. Mexico has had a period of multiple journalists killed in a single week. Uh, journalists in Russia, independent newspapers have been shut down uh, in other countries as well. Uh, people imprisoned, uh, political tools are used to silence dissent and uh, it, it's 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 critically important that uh, you know, people understand that the way that the message 
can be con attempted to be controlled by mm -hmm. those in power, whether it's a government or a cartel, is you control the media, you control the message, you control the flow of information. It, it's, a, it's a fundamental concept, which Santiago Leon talks about uh, in the film. It's you control the information, you control the narrative. And a lot of people don't like not having control over what's being said about what's happening in their country, uh, for example. And it just makes the work that's being done all, like, all the more important. Well, that's a positive note. We can kind of leave it there. Uh, Shooting War is playing at Hot Docs in 2022. I will put the link in, obviously, for the show notes for all the, the screenings. But congratulations on getting into Hot Docs. That's a really good, prominent uh, documentary film festival. That's a good audience where it can kind of connect with uh, the people who are hungry for this kind of information. They want to see uh, the old man behind the wizard. Oh, yeah. Thanks, Sammy. Yeah, we're we're ecstatic that it was accepted to Hot Docs. Uh, being given that kind of profile is is terrific for our future plans for the film, but also for the audience awareness of the themes that are in the film. And uh, it's it's a great encouragement for us to continue to do more work in, in this kind of long format. All right. We can look forward to that as well from uh, the Global Mail production team. So thank you, Patrick, for hanging out. Uh, I know this was kind of a heavy <laughs> topic, um, but hopefully you do get to like take your son to Comic-Con and you guys get to do another like little short video, kind of like break it up, have a little fun, kind of show us his uh, Pokemon interests. And uh, <laughs> then we can kind of go back, circle back to some of the more serious things and serious topics later on. You bet. Thanks a lot, Sammy. Yo, that was director Patrick Dell. I'm your My Summer Layer host, Sammy. If you have a chance, check out Shooting War, playing at Hot Docs, hopefully a few more upcoming festivals. Watching, I was reminded of the classic line, the first casualty when war comes is truth. This global mail documentary explores the emotional and physical costs it takes to share truth during war. We tend to focus on the soldiers and their PTSD, War has many dire tentacles that deviously grip many people. That whole concept of moral injury was something new to me. And it makes a lot of sense. We're seeing that now. The way that people shoot things here in North America. But then feel powerless to do anything about it. I mean, we're a photography-based society. Thanks in large part to social media and advanced mobile phones, yet often the photographic stories we're eagerly sharing are self-absorbed. We're often in a war for new followers. Hopefully, shooting war sparks an interest in the individuals who've risked their lives and their sanity to bring us frontline photos. Good journalism, it starts with intent and a clear focus which is no different than good photography. Before I go, a My Summer Layer public service announcement. If you enjoyed this conversation, some good news. My pal Sammy newsletter. Let us extend the conversation. And I know you think of email and you think of negative connotations. You think of work. You think of that sweet senior citizen in your life who keeps forwarding those weird chain letters things so that they welcome good luck. All of that is true. All of that is email. That's because for those people and those emails the E in email stands for electronic mail. So what if? 
What if the E stood for experience? What if it stood for event? What if it stood for excellence? Wouldn't that be exciting? Email doesn't have to be email. Does that make sense? Go to mysummerlair.com slash subscribe to sign up for the weekly pop culture My Pal Sammy newsletter. You will be elated you did. Thank you for listening to me in a Netflix world. Photojournalism, yo.